Good morning. Let's continue in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for giving us your word, and we pray that this morning as we turn again to it, we ask that you might take distractions from us and enable us to hear your voice. Teach us what you want to teach us. Encourage us as you want to encourage us. Spur us on as you want to spur us on, so that we might live truly as disciples of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, it was um, late 2008, the year of more overseas travel than I had ever imagined I would do. Uh, Separate trips to Nigeria, then to England, then to Israel, and finally to Uganda. I've been part of a small theological commission putting together the theological foundation documents for the new GAFCON movement. We had all met in Makomo at the Ugandan Christian University. I was billeted in the technology park at one end of the campus. Our meetings were held in Bishop Tucker School of Theology at the other end. Now, it was a memorable time, but one memory stands out. On one day, uh, the meetings had gone till nine o'clock and a small group were going to continue finishing the administrative details. I was told I could go home um, just 10 minutes down the track, that direction. It was one of the most frightening 10 minutes or so of my entire life. You see, it was pitch black, no street lights, no torches, no moon or stars in the sky, nothing. Once I turned the first corner, I was on a track with jungle on one side and what I imagined was jungle on the other side. I could see virtually nothing in front of me. I kept imagining sounds on the left out there and sounds on the right out there. I remember thinking to myself, well, perhaps this is how it ends. (laughs) Australian theologian found dead on a track in Uganda. Or worse still, half of an Australian theologian (laughs) found dead on a track in Uganda. A journey through the terrifying darkness. And then, with one turn, a small flickering light in the distance up ahead. And then it got bigger and brighter. And I found my way to the technology park, opened the door, entered my room, got changed, dropped into bed and fell asleep, watched by the gecko who'd taken up residence there with me. (laughs) Well, um, over the last two weeks as we've looked together at the book of the prophet Zephaniah, we've been travelling through the dark, the dark of terrifying global judgement. And we've forced ourselves to stand still for a moment in that darkness, to bear the weight of it for just a little while. It hasn't been unremitting darkness, has it? There have been flickers of light along the way, indications of grace, of an undiminished determination on God's part to keep his promises, of a salvation and vindication that occurs at the same point, on the same day as judgment. But today uh, we take that turn in the track and we see the light we've been hoping for. We take up the reading at verse 8 of chapter 3, at the same verse that we ended with last week. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out my indignation, all my burning anger. 
For in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed one, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. What a terrific expression of hope. It was, of course, a hope that never would be realised, not in all its fullness, in the days of the prophet or in the history of Israel even. It is a picture of God's great day, a day of judgment, yes, but a day of salvation. And you might never have thought it possible, but it will be a day of salvation on a scale bigger than that of the judgment that we've been hearing about over the past two weeks. It is a wonderful example of a promise of salvation which Peter tells us in his first letter so gripped the hearts and minds of the prophets of the Old Testament that they searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. But didn't he go on to say it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but us. Zephaniah 3 is talking about not just the restoration of Judah, judged with the nations because of her sins, but of that dreadful and yet wonderful day to come when we are liberated, vindicated and restored and our sins are wiped away forever. And as we think about these words from our Heavenly Father this morning, I want you to see the size of it, the sheer magnitude of it. And one great way to do that is to notice the instructions to those who hear these final words of this prophecy, whether in 7th century BC Judah or in 21st century AD Australia. Did you notice them? 
There are only two. The first of them is in verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. Wait. Wait for what? Well, in the first instance, the proper question is, wait for whom? Wait for me, declares the Lord. There is someone worth waiting for, and what he will do is worth waiting for. Christian faith and Christian hope are never far away from each other because they centre in the one person. We trust in the Lord Jesus now, in the present, and he is our only hope in the future as well. He watches over both. He secures both. And the same was true in Israel. Faith in the Lord and hope in the Lord were never far from each other either. In the midst of the injustice and the idolatry and the disintegration of moral life, the faithful Israelite lived each day by faith, trusting that the Lord who had claimed them in the past would not abandon them in the present, no matter how bleak or dark it looked. And the same faithful Israelite looked forward in hope for the consolation of Israel, for the Lord and the salvation he will bring. Now, we're not very good at waiting, are we? It's got to come to me now. I have to have the things I want now. In the world around us, perhaps that makes sense, because there is no hope. There might not be a tomorrow. We could incinerate each other, either by nuclear explosion or by our violation of the planet. The dystopian novels seem to be more realistic than the utopian stories. We've been given the leaders we deserve and it's eating away at us. And so if there is no future worth contemplating, then why wait when this here and now is all there is? Sometimes it's uh, that kind of pessimism that does it. Sometimes it's just undiluted selfishness and it's amplified by our sense of entitlement. Give it to me now. I have a right to have it now. And the sad truth, friends, is that that way of thinking has found its way into some of our minds too. We can be as focused on the now and on me as anyone else. But there is something worth waiting for, someone worth waiting for. Remember those words of the Apostle Paul that uh, we've kept coming back to as we worked our way through Zephaniah? We are those who have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We are awaiting people, a future-oriented people. We're not preoccupied with the past, hankering after some illusory past golden age. We're not antiquarians or traditionalists. Our very identity as Christians points us forward. We are, not, we are those who are waiting for something that is not here yet. Sure, we have the deposit, the down payment, the first fruits, but the fullness, 
salvation in all its glorious power and triumph, when the presence and power of sin, as well as its penalty, are done away with forever, that still lies ahead. Secure and certain now, yes, but not yet here. In Zephaniah 3, the day in which the Lord will rise up remains in the future. But it will be a day when judgment falls and salvation is secured. The nations are gathered together but to receive the anger of the Lord in verse 8. At the same time, it is a day when the dispersed children of God will gather to call on the name of the Lord and to serve him, verses 9 and 10. It's a day when the haughty and the proud are removed, verse 11. At the same time, it's a day when the humble and lowly are left to seek refuge in the name of the Lord, verse 12. It's a day when injustice and falsehood is dealt with for good, verse 13. And at the same time, it is a day when peace and provision means there is no one left to make them afraid, also in verse 13. I can't help think of the day when the ferocity of Jew and Gentile was unleashed against God's Christ, which at one and the same time was the day when the redemptive purpose of God found its fulfilment. It is finished. And on that day, the most frightening enemy of them all, death, is comprehensively defeated. And yet there is a day to come when wrath and mercy will meet again where all that's gone wrong in the world and in us will be confronted by God's power and wiped away for good. And yet where Jesus is seen for all he is and his victory recognised for all it is and his people claimed for who they are, forgiven sinners whose only hope is the lamb who was slain and who now reigns in glory. You've seen the darkness You know what's coming, Zephaniah the prophet says to all who read his prophecy. So wait. Wait and be astonished at what God will do on that day. Well, the second instruction to us who read this prophecy 26 and a half centuries ago or today is just as remarkable. It's there in verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. It's the command to sing. Singing was a regular part of life with God under the Old Covenant. And singing has been a peculiar characteristic of God's people today in very different circumstances. We sing because our hearts are full. We sing because we've been given something so magnificent that we cannot hold it in. Think of the great songwriters of the church, Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Or John Newton, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Or Charles Wesley, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Or Stuart Townend, how deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. We sing because there's something worth singing about. The burden of sin, 
the menace of death, the fear of judgment, all taken away. That's why we sing. What can take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. That one from Robert Lowry. Or my heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again. Thank you, Keith and Kristen Getty. Singing expresses delight and release and joy better than just about anything else we do. And here in Zephaniah, the joy is on a phenomenal scale. Once again, first and foremost, it's centred on the Lord himself. Sing because he is among you and because of what he has done. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. God is worth singing about. He's worth rejoicing in, simply because of who he is and simply because he chooses to be with us. Now, that's an astonishing thought when you stop to think about it. Every atom in the universe exists only because of him and holds together now only because of him and yet he chooses to dwell among us. It's an extraordinary privilege, isn't it? That this morning, in this place, the only living God is among his people. We are gathered together here. We have the opportunity to encourage each other, to love and serve each other with the gifts God has given us. But primarily and fundamentally, We gather here around God's word because we gather to hear God. And we have the promise of Christ that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And the privilege is all the more astonishing given what's going on around us and in which we too are complicit. A world that has its back toward God churches and servants who joined them in this foolish rebellion. It was like that in Zephaniah's day. Remember all that he's described in Judah that had called forth the judgment of God? Despite godly King Josiah, the rot had set in and it had taken firm hold. And yet God was promising here and in this way that he would be in their midst. And look what else that day brings. That is a reason for singing. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, verse 15. Fully deserved, but taken away. He has cleared away your enemies, again in verse 15. Just a little later in verse 19. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. Those who stood against God's people then... Those who stand against God's people now, proud and strong, and some of them are even claiming that they are really God's people and you are not, finally undone, exposed and humiliated. One of our brothers was uh, labelled the Antichrist this week with a sign was held outside the Sydney Synod. I actually found him a little later and told him it was just like him claiming too much for himself. (laughs) An antichrist, I could fathom, but the antichrist? (laughs) I've been called names this week. 
Perhaps some of you have been too. And there is the persecution of a more savage kind, not too far from us, and the painful context of gospel ministry for far too many of our brothers and sisters. But on that day, they will be vindicated. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. There's good reason to wait, and there's good reason to sing. But did you notice the singular and most wonderful truth in the entire passage? It's there in verse 17. You see, the people waiting for their salvation in the midst of judgment are not the only ones who sing. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. The Lord sings in delight over the people he has rescued. God is not only a God who acts with mighty power and unstoppable purpose. God is not only a God who speaks and brings his word to the hearts of men and women, shaping them and building them and nurturing them. He is the Lord who sings. He delights in those he saved. He rejoices over them. He chose Israel. He provides for Israel. He guards Israel. But on that day, he also sings in delight over the remnant of Israel. God's love is his commitment to those he has claimed as his own. But it is also his delight in them and in their salvation. So have you grasped it? Have you understood how huge God's work of salvation is? On the great day of the Lord, at the cross, yes, where wrath and mercy met in an extraordinary way, but also at the end, where the vindication of his people and the fulfilment of his promise is on display for all to see, where no one will be able to deny it, and even those who refuse him and shake their fist at him will have no choice but to bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So friends, wait. Look forward. Be a people of hope. And let that hope shape today. And sing. Rejoice in the astonishing mercy of God to someone as riddled with sin as me. And know that now and on that day, The Lord delights in those he has saved, and he is the Lord who sings.